chapter 17 tonight. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 16. And I gave this one a title, and it's called Hold Up My Hands. Hold Up My Hands. Exodus 17. If you remember, we're coming off the account where uh, the people were thirsty, the people of Israel were thirsty. Of course, they became whiny as they normally did about their conditions. And you remember God instructed Moses in Exodus chapter 17 to um, strike the rock. And God literally said that when this was going to take place, that he would go and stand on top of the rock. And uh, Moses was instructed to strike the rock, remember, with the rod of God, the staff of God. And when he did, the water would flow to the people. And in 1 Corinthians 10.4, the Apostle Paul talks about um, the wilderness wanderings of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, is a great chapter if you want to uh, look back and see how Israel blew it time and time again. And one of the interesting things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4 is that the rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness was literally Christ. And the Jews used to say that that rock, at least they had a legend that that, that rock kind of followed them. Now that was a legend, but... Paul literally says that Christ was the rock. And in, the, in this sense, that he was the sustaining one. God was literally with Israel providing, being the provision for the people. And so that rock that followed them literally was Christ. And when God stood on top of the rock, we believe that that was a prophetic picture of Christ being struck at the cross and by virtue of his death and resurrection from the dead, living water would flow from the Holy Spirit to God's people. And so this is the beautiful prophetic picture that we have as Oscar um, taught last week. And Jesus is the rock. And when he was struck one time for all people, living waters flow. And now, of course, from Numbers chapter 20, the completion of the picture, uh, Moses is told the second time just to speak to the rock, remember? But Moses got angry and you remember, he hit the rock a couple different times. The water came out, but then God said, Moses, because you treated me as unholy before the people, you will not enter the promised land. You blew the prophetic picture. You treated me as unholy. And so as much as Moses had done for the people, as faithful as he had been to God, you don't mess with God's prophetic picture. Christ was only struck one time. Now all you have to do is speak to the rock. In essence, you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved and living waters will flow into you and come out of you. According to Jesus in John 7, 37 through 39, he says the one who believes in him out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke about the Spirit, okay? So now, after the people have seen God's provision in Exodus 17, God has come through for them. They've had their spiritual, uh, not their spiritual, but their uh, physical uh, thirst quenched in a spiritual picture. Now, all of a sudden, war breaks out. And I just want to kind of start this off by telling you that after you become a Christian, it does not solve all of your problems. As a matter of fact, war tends to break out almost immediately. And so when you talk to a new Christian, perhaps you witness to somebody and you have the privilege of leading them to Jesus Christ, uh, you can tell them to anticipate warlike conditions because uh, they have an enemy and the enemy is Satan himself. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible tells us about 
our warfare. And it tells us that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Paul said in light of that, he said, be strong in the Lord, and listen to this, in the strength of his might. So two kind of things piled one on top of the other. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he goes on to say, put on the whole, not part of it, but the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? To stand, and then he says this, against the wiles of the devil. Paul used a Greek word there for wiles, a word that's sometimes translated methods. It's a Greek word called methodia. Literally, the schemes of the devil. And the word implies what you already know from the English, that the devil has methodology. He has methods or schemes, and wiles implies slippery kind of schemes to stumble you. And so Paul says that is the essence of the battle, is that you have an enemy of your soul, and even after you become saved, because Ephesians is written to Christians, you, you are going to be engaged in warfare. Even after you've drunk of the living waters, there is an enemy who would like nothing more than to devour you. 1 Peter 5.8 says he goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you want to break down that Greek word, it literally means he wants to destroy you and drink you down. Gulp you up. That's the essence of the picture. Satan does not have a wonderful plan for your life. He wants to destroy Christians. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your life. So if you, ha you have to understand that after you taste of the living waters, the Amalekites will come in the form of principalities and powers and things of this nature. Now I often have read Ephesians chapter 6 and said, Lord, are you sure that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? Because <laughs> it sure seems like people are our problem. But you know, the Lord... Um, knows what we need and he knows the spiritual picture and of course ultimately we battle against principalities and powers but they come to us in very much um, normal everyday kinds of situations we struggle with people we struggle with personalities we struggle with relationships uh, and of course in first john we know that john tells us we struggle with the lust of the flesh the lust of our eyes and our boastful pride of life all energized by Satan, if you will. He uses the things of the world to get us off track. So I want you to picture now, for, as a uh, contemporary Christian, the battle that you face as the Amalekites come to the children of Israel. Remember that uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 15 says that these things were written for our instruction. The Old Testament accounts of Israel, the wilderness wanderings, were specifically written to instruct us that we should not follow carnal things, that we should learn from Israel's mistakes. So you can definitely make application from the Old Testament stories. They're more than stories, they're accounts. They're actually things that happen to these people. So now, if you look, uh, notice in verse 8, right after the, uh, how the children of Israel were quenched with the water, but they indeed tested the Lord, it says, Then Amalek came, verse 8, Exodus 17, and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Now, Amalek is an interesting character. He's a grandson of Esau, and he is the father of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the bitter enemies of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. They become the foes of Israel. 
Um, Saul deals with them. Gideon's army deals with them. David deals with them. And so they are really a picture of the enemies of God's people. And so here they come now. They're going to fight against Israel. They're supposed to be a treacherous group of people located down in the Sinai Peninsula, which is the southernmost tip of Israel. And there they have uh, gained a foothold of territory and Israel is marching in that direction and so they want to fight with Israel. And so Moses in verse 9 said to Joshua, and just if you're interested, this is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible, uh, first mention in the book of Exodus as well. Joshua, of course, was the son of Nun, not N-O-N-E, but N-U-N. He actually did have a father, but you could use that as a joke if you want to. The son of Nun, you know, anyway. But uh, Moses said to Joshua, and literally Joshua's name is Hosea or Yahshua uh, in the Hebrew, which does mean Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And the Greek form of the Hebrew for Joshua is Jesus. So Joshua is literally the name of Jesus, only Jesus is the Greek form and Joshua is the Hebrew form. And so here it says that Joshua is called upon by Moses. He's being groomed for leadership. Of course, Joshua would be the one that takes the baton and leads the children of Israel into the promised land. And so Moses says to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill or the summit of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Moses says, you're going to go down, Joshua, you're going to fight Amalek and I am going to station myself on the top of this hill. Now you have to kind of wonder, is Moses chickening out here? Is he just going to get a good vantage point and watch the battle going on? Well, what is going on? Well, it says in Joshua did, verse 10, as Moses told him, he fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now notice that Moses takes two men with him. He's got Aaron with him, who is, of course, his brother, and would become the first high priest of Israel. And then he's got a, a gentleman call, called Hur, H-U-R, with him, who would become a ver, very much a prominent leader uh, for Israel. If you want to just make a note, in Exodus 24, 14, when Moses and Joshua go up to receive the law from God, Aaron and Hur are the two men that the people are to come to in legal matters. So Hur is a very prominent leader. Uh, he's one of the top guys apparently in Israel. So it came about in verse 11 when Moses held up his hand or held his hand up that Israel prevailed or they were winning. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed or they were winning. And if you look at the next couple of verses, it actually indicates hands. So Moses, in raising his hands, is impacting the battle. Now picture the scene for a second. Moses goes to the top of the hill, or the top of the summit of the hill, and down below is the war. Joshua is leading the children of Israel. This is the first war that these people have to deal with. They've just come out of Egypt. They're not a military machine by any stretch of the imagination. They've been running from Pharaoh's army whom God delivered them from. And now they encounter these people who are known for their warfare. So Israel has to engage in battle. And Moses is on the top of the hill with that staff. And literally, I think... Uh, we're safe to say that Moses is either doing this with the staff, 
he's holding it up with both hands or he's doing something like this where he's got the staff in one hand and he's holding up the other hand to God. And as much as Moses can keep his hands in the air, down below the war is won by Israel or they're at least ahead. As much as he lowers his hands, they start to lose below. And as you step back and look at that picture, at first you, you wonder, what is going on here? What is the significance of Moses being up there and somehow his raised or lowered hands impacting the battle in this particular way? Well, there's an interesting picture in the Bible. Uh, some of you who have been around Christianity for enough time know that there are different types of worship and approaches to worship. We have very conservative churches where people wear three-piece suits and everybody stands and doesn't smile and it's a very conservative form of worship. We have other churches where people will run up and down the aisles and do somersaults and hang off the chandeliers. And then we have everything in between that, don't we? And in some churches, um, you will walk into a place. I remember years ago when we saw anybody raise their hands in worship, we thought, boy, that person is kind of strange. A little on the fanatical side. You know, what is the deal with that? And then, I don't know if you guys uh, get any worship videos, but uh, I enjoy Hillsongs. Uh, they're, they're one of my favorite uh, worship teams. And when you watch Hillsongs uh, play in a, in a setting, everybody's got their hands up worshiping God. And so the question is, okay, we do something, we see people do something, and, and maybe you've even felt this urge to raise your hand, but the question is, what does it mean? Uh, we shouldn't ever do something if we don't know the, what the significance of it is. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't raise our hands. Uh, you should feel free to do that. But the, the bigger question is, why do we do that? What is the significance of raising one's hands? I want to take you through a little journey in the book of Psalms. So hold your place in Exodus and turn to Psalm 28. And I'm going to show you some things that the psalmist says about the raising of hands in the Bible. In Psalm 28, verses 1 and 2, notice what the psalmist says. Psalm 28, this is a psalm of David. Psalm 28, 1 and 2. It says this, To thee, O Lord, I call... My rock, do not be deaf to me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplications. What does supplication mean, by the way? What does it mean? It means to pray. To pray. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to thee for help, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy sanctuary. So now the psalmist says that when he lifts up his hands, it's connected to prayer. And as he raises his hands to heaven, it's, a, it's, a, it's symbolic of his prayer to God. Now if you flip over to Psalm 63, stay in the psalm, Psalm 63, and look at verses 1 through 4. Psalm 63, 1 through 4. It says this, this is again a psalm of David. He's out in the wilderness being chased by Saul. Psalm 63, 1, O God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. 
So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. So now this lifting up of hands is related to worship. It's related to one who wants to bless the name of God. And so he or she lifts up their hands to the Lord. A few more. If you look at Psalm 88 verse 9, Psalm 88 9, Notice what the psalmist says about this. Psalm 88, 9. He says, My eye, Psalm 88, 9, has, has wasted away because of affliction. Now he's in distress. I have called upon thee every day. O Lord, I have spread out my hands to thee. Now here's a person in affliction. Here's a person suffering struggling with the uh, everyday affairs of life. And this person, this psalmist says, I will spread out my hands in my affliction. In essence, I will give up and call to you. And I could take you through a whole odyssey of different uh, psalms. I'll, I'll read a few more for you. Psalm 119.48 says, I will lift up my hands to thy commandments, which I love, God's word. Psalm 141, verse 2. May my prayer be counted as incense before thee. The lifting up my hands is the evening offering. And then finally, Psalm 143, 6. I stretch out my hands to thee. My soul longs for thee as a parched land. Selah. Think about that. Now turn back to Exodus. So... A uh, couple, couple other glimpses in the book of Exodus that I want to point out to you as you turn back there. Just keep going to Exodus chapter 9 and notice something here from Moses. Exodus 9, verse 22. Um, <clears throat> as the plagues are unfolding in Egypt, Exodus nine twenty-two, it says this. Now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on the land of Egypt and on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. So even when the plagues were coming, uh, Moses in some instances was asked to stretch out his hands to bring the plague. And finally, Exodus 10 verse 12, notice it says this, Exodus 10 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt and so forth. So turn back to Exodus 17. Now as you begin to round out the picture of the lifting up of hands, uh, remember that it was done in times of prayer. It was done in times of praise. It was done in times of persecution. It was done, uh, in essence, to worship God. And there was something in the posture of one's body where lifting up of hands meant an expression of something to God. And it was for prayer, praise, even when you were being persecuted or in affliction, it was a lifting up of hands. Now, I remember one uh, speaker was talking about a service that uh, he did one day, or actually a service that he was at one day, I should say, uh, that really impacted him. And um, I believe it was a concert, and the person at the end of the concert said, if you want to receive Jesus Christ into your life, or if you're a Christian and you've been struggling with something, I'm going to ask you to pray and I want you to raise up your hands to God. And in essence, here's what I want you to do. As you raise up your hands, I want it to be two things. 
One, that you are releasing anything that you've been struggling with or sinning and you're going to give it to God right now. Number two, you're going to receive back His mercy and His grace and strength to deal with the issues of your life. So this person talked about how they were a backslidden Christian in this particular concert and how in that moment they gave up what was for them a very um, troubling sin. It was something that is taboo even in our society and this Christian person was struggling with it and that night as they lifted up their hands in response to this call, they in essence let it go to God and then received back his mercy and strength to deal with it. And I think there's something to that picture too. I think in essence when we feel the freedom to, in the, to say something like this, God, I'm sticking up these hands because I'm giving up. I can't live the Christian life. I can't do it. I'm giving it to you. Would you please give me back your strength in exchange? That there's something to that. There's something that God honors in a person that's honestly trying to give up and say, <laughs> saying, Lord, I can't live the Christian life. I give up. I hold my hands up to you. Would you please fight the battle for me? Would you please fight the Amalekites? Because I can't. Every time I lower my hands, I start losing. Now, is it just, should we be walking around going, <laughs> praise you, Lord, I don't want to lower my hands? Is it just the hands being up in the air? No. It's right here, isn't it? It's an attitude of worship that God's looking for. Now, lifting up your hands can be an expression of your heart. But we shouldn't do something mechanically either. We shouldn't think that just doing this means that we're worshiping. It's, it's this should be simply an outgrowth of what's here. And so, isn't it interesting that as Moses, the identified leader, is on top of the hill, as much as he can keep his hands in the air and keep that rod of God up, the Israelite army is winning. And I'll say this to you tonight. As much as you can keep an attitude of worship in your life, as you deal with the 24-7 of this world, as you deal with difficult friends, difficult circumstances, challenging freeways, um, challenging sins that so easily entangle you, as much as you can keep those hands up, you're going to win. Not because you're doing it, but because you're giving it to God. Now we have cliches in the Christian community and sometimes we get sick of hearing them. Oh, just give it to God. Just give it to God. You know, Sometimes we get sick and tired of that. But, but that usually our cliches are truthful. They have truth in them. And that's why they're said so many times. And it is true that we have to give this life, this heart to God. And what does God want? Does he want a partial commitment? Does he just want one hand? No, he wants a wholehearted commitment. And to the degree that you can understand tonight that your victory is bound up in your worship, you will win. And to the degree that you start dropping those hands and get your eyes off of God and you think that you can go down there and fight Amalek on your own, you're going to get, your tar, you're going to get the tar beat out of you. You're going to get wiped out. You can't go and fight a battle without the armor of God. You know what they call... Uh, Christians who go and try to fight this battle without the armor of God? Casualties. You can't do it. You're not going to win. You may last for a while, but remember, the armor of God is there for a reason. It's to protect you. It's to help you be victorious. 
So this whole scene, folks, is something much deeper. It's a picture of our lives. We're down here and we're battling. And we need so desperately to understand that the key to our victory is a life of worship. It's to start our day with the things that matter most. It's to end our day with um, our noses in the Bible, with understanding how desperately we need the resources of God. But we live in a culture today that doesn't get that. Because most Christians that you talk to are biblically illiterate, they find very little time to read their Bible or pray, and they wonder why they're straying and why they're so defeated in their Christian life. It's no, there's no magic here. There's no secret uh, to why they're failing. The secret is that they're not spending the time that they need on the summit. Now, I could take you through a lot of Old Testament stories that talk about the attitude of worship being the key to victory, but one that comes to mind is found in Second Chronicles 20, and we won't turn there for the sake of time, but the... Um, uh, Judah is uh, facing, King Jehoshaphat is facing a battle. And it says in Second Chronicles 20, verse 15, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You remember that verse? And then you can look at First Samuel um, 17, when David is about to fight Goliath. David says this. He says, uh, this day, he says to Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Now remember, this little puny Israelite is dealing with, what, a nine-foot-tall giant? He can't even put on Saul's armor. Notice his confidence. And I will strike you down and remove your head from you. <laughs> and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Listen to David. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. That's what he said to this giant. I'm not going to fight you. When I whip the rock around with my little, what did he have? Little slingshot? High tech slingshot? What's going to happen? One shot between the eyes because the battle belongs to the Lord. There was no way that that Philistine giant was going to win that day because the battle belongs to the Lord. And he fell hard that day. And see, that's where we are in our lives. You know, we have so many situations that seem Goliath-like. You know, there's giants everywhere. But to the degree that we keep our hands up, we will win. I want you to notice in verse 12 what starts to happen to Moses. Moses is no spring chicken at this point. And Moses' hands were heavy, verse 12. And then they took a stone. Remember, he's got the two buddies up there. And they put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Moses started to get tired. He started to realize, man, if I don't keep my hands up, we're going to lose. But he had two friends up there. And one got on one side and one got on the other side and they held up Moses' hands. And you know what? That's what you need. See, sometimes when you're trying to live this life of worship, it gets heavy. It gets hard. And if you try to be a solo Christian in this world and you don't have some chums, some buds to pick you up when your arms are heavy, 
you don't have some people to be accountable to, if you don't have some people that you can call that know you well enough to ask you some tough questions, if you can't be transparent with a couple people and tell them I'm struggling and I need you to hold my hands up, you're going to be in trouble. And so Moses is up there and his arms are heavy and he realizes what's at stake and so do his friends. And so they say, you take the one arm, I'll take the other and we'll hold him up. And I will tell you that in the Christian life, even when you're reading your Bible and praying and you're trying to witness to people, sometimes it gets heavy. Sometimes, you know, you've listened to other people and you're trying to come alongside others and you're going, Lord, man, I can't keep my hands up. That's when you need somebody to come alongside you and say, I'm not going to let your hands fall. I'm not going to let them fall. I'm going to come alongside you and, and ask you and challenge you to keep worshiping. Keep them up. I'll come alongside you. Sometimes we're going to be that person who's with Moses, you know, doing this. And sometimes we're going to be that person who's here. We can be both. We can't always be the perfect person who's always worshiping. That's why we have what's called the body of Christ. If you do a concordance search you have your little handy-dandy computer Bible programs. If you have one in the back of your Bible, look up the word one another and see how many commands in the Bible say love one another, blank one another. On and on it goes. And it talks about the fellowship within the body. We need one another. We need to hold each other up. I need you to hold my hands up. I need you praying for me. And you need the same thing from me. And sometimes the Christian... Life is going to get heavy, folks. And so I hope you have some, some people close enough to you that can support you. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, verse 12, in the middle, one on one side and one on the other. And thus his hands were steady until sunset. And so Joshua, verse 13, overwhelmed Amalek. Now Joshua didn't really do it, but God did it through Joshua and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Record it, Moses. Write it down and let it be passed on to generation to generation. And this is a little implication here that uh, God already was setting apart Joshua, by the way, to take leadership. In verse 15, Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. Now, it's uh, just a quick note about banners. In ancient times when armies would fight one another, the armies would carry the banners of their gods. So if you were the uh, children of Israel, you would carry a banner. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure, I can't remember at, the, at this point what exactly that they carried. But at least the pagan armies would carry images of their gods. Uh, of course, uh, Israel carried the Ark before them, didn't they? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was sort of the banner of the Lord in terms of representing His uh, presence. But ancient armies would carry these banners, which was just a standard pole with a flag on it, and it, it had an insignia of their god. And so when two ancient peoples warred together, the essence of it was, my god is fighting against your god. And whoever lost... Uh, of course, he had to admit that his God was weaker than the other people's gods. And they, the armies would exploit the losing 
uh, army. They would literally mock them and their God and sometimes they would put things through their noses and take them captive and do terrible things to them. Well, here, when Moses records what happened in the book and then he makes an altar, he named the, the altar, the Lord is my banner, literally Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And if you think about that image of uh, the banner representing the God of the army, I think that's the essence of what we have here. Uh, Yahweh just won the battle for us. And thus I will make the altar to remember what God has done for us. And so, if you look now at the final verse uh, for tonight, notice it says in Exodus 17, and he said, The Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. This definitely ha- did happen in uh, Israel's history from generation to generation. But there's, a, there's an interesting side note here regarding verse 16. Um, and scholars say this, there's a difficulty in the Hebrew text in terms of what it permits as an alternate translation. And the NIV has it this way. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And I think that's an interesting um, translation of the Hebrew. Hands were lifted up and the Lord brought the war and the victory. So tonight, um, as we kind of sum up, I just want you to think about the images that we've talked about tonight. How are you doing in the spiritual warfare? How are you doing in your battle? How much of you realize that the battle belongs to the Lord? How much have you given away to him? How much are you holding back? You say, well, you can have these things, but these last couple things, they're still mine, Lord. They're mine. I want them. The Lord says, no, I want everything. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard. Yeah. You want to put them up, but you don't want them. Right? The Lord says, put them up and just let it go. And I'll replace those things with things that are a thousand times better. Oh, but Lord, it's tough sometimes. And then tonight, do you, you know, the primary thing is your worship before the Lord and the power of the Spirit, but do you have some friends that if your arms get heavy, do you have some Christian brothers and sisters that can hold you up? Have you set up your life that way? To where if you needed some help, you'd you'd have it? Someone knows you well enough to to intercede for you and if you don't or maybe you know tonight if God's putting somebody on your heart and you you know that there's somebody out there that might be weak in the battle uh, we're to help those people aren't we and we can only help those who want help but we should try to come alongside as many as possible final thought for you too Um, you know the name for the Holy Spirit in the Bible is called the parakletos. The one literally who comes alongside you. And isn't it interesting that, you know, Moses has Aaron and her coming alongside him to hold his hands up. Literally. But the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, is the one who, what does he do? Comes alongside to render help and aid. That's why he's here. Jesus called him the helper or the advocate, literally the one who comes alongside. And so you can think of the image this way, that the one who will ultimately help you to hold up your hands is the Holy Spirit. 
He's going to give you the power and the strength. He gives you um, what you need to live the Christian life victoriously, to boldly witness the gospel, and to produce what's called the fruit of the Spirit. So how do you know when you're living that life of worship? Well, are you loving? Do you have peace? Do you have joy? Do you have self-control? Do you have gentleness, goodness, kindness? All the things that we deeply desire. When you see that the radar's moving pretty well in those areas, then you probably know that, you know, my hands are up. And the Holy Spirit's helping me to keep them up. But when you drop them down and you're not seeking His help, how easy it is to lose that life of worship. How easy it is to start to lose in the battle. And all of a sudden you find that the Amalekites have the upper hand. Why? Because my hands are down. So, tonight, as we think about this great image that God the Holy Spirit's given to us in Scripture, we need to think about how we want to fight this battle. And remember, as we said Sunday, it's not by might. It's not by your power. It's by the Spirit of God. So take the weapons that you have, hold up your hands, release anything that is heavy, give it to Him, let him give you back what you need to live this life. And you will experience victory. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the great lessons that we can share together in Scripture. Lord, I think intellectually we all know these truths, but sometimes practically it's hard to implement them. It's, it's hard to keep our hands up in this world sometimes we feel like there's things that come alongside that pull our hands down and and we feel sometimes like we're burdened and things are heavy and you tell us that we can cast every burden to you because you care for us you love us you tell us that we don't need to be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving we can let our requests be made known to you and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that the Amalekites are everywhere in this world and we have a spiritual battle. And Lord, we know that to the degree that we can keep these hands up, we can keep an attitude of worship, we will experience victory. Help us, Lord, when things get heavy. Help us to realize that indeed the battle belongs to you. And help us when our hands get heavy to have some good people around us, some brothers and sisters who can hold us up. Help us not to be afraid to ask for help when we need it. And let those of us, Lord, who are walking with the Lord be sensitive so that we can be there for others. That we can help the weak and do what Jesus Christ did to put others as more important than ourselves, Lord. Lord, tonight we think of our brother Joe who's over there in rehab and we want to lift him up to you and we pray that you will strengthen him tonight. We lift up our friend Vern who's been struggling with his health and there's many other concerns that we have tonight, Father. We just want to pray for those people who are on our hearts and minds and, and Lord, as we look at our own lives, I just pray that whatever's heavy, whatever we need to let go of tonight, give us the strength and the trust to do so and may you uh, give back to us what we need to fight the good fight of faith and to finish the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray in his holy and mighty name.
Amen.